Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This podcast is dedicated to Shlomo Berlin, Shlomo ben Rachel Vishimon, with prayers for Rafua Shlema from Rabbi Chaim Herring and Terry Kravosha. This week's episode features Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish on Parshat Matot. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit almad.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish and Rabbi Alex Israel. Shalom. Welcome to Pardes from Jerusalem. My name is Alex Israel. And my name is Nechama Goldman Barish. And we are delighted to be with you talking here about Parshat Matot, which is a Parsha which is read alone as a sole Parsha here in Israel. And uh, next week will be read in Chutzaret in the diaspora, will be read as a double Parsha, Matot and Masay. And I think I'm going to open, we agreed I'd open, and I'm going to talk about the opening line of the Parsha, which introduces the notion of vows of uh, using your language in order to create new obligations. It starts off by saying, If a person makes a vow to God or takes an oath, binding themselves to a particular obligation, they may not abrogate their word. They have to follow that which their mouth uh, obligated them. And here we enter into the whole area of the, the Judaism endorses, and it's a very serious area in halacha, the notion of oaths and vows. We all know the, the, the prayer kol nidre, right, which takes vows very seriously. And um, I just want to begin by maybe quoting uh, as a way of opening up the conversation, two lines from the Rambam, from Maimonides, in Hilchot Nadarim, in his legal text which deals with vows. And when in, in, in 13th chapter, paragraph 23, it says this, Mishen Adar Nadarim deotav. If somebody has made themselves a vow in order to put themselves, their characteristics, in the right way, to sort of direct their life, so it's great to to do a thing like this if you want to improve your life. And here are the examples. For example, somebody who's overeating and he's he's a glutton and he decides he shouldn't have any wine. Or somebody, he says here, who is uh, getting himself drunk too often, drinking too much alcohol and swears off any alcohol, then that is a positive thing. So says Maimonides. But two paragraphs later in Halacha Chafhei, in paragraph 25, he says the following. He says, Amru Chachamim, the rabbi says, Kol Hanoder, anybody who makes a vow, Ke'ilu Bana Bama. It is if you have constructed an alternative altar. A Bama is a sacrificial altar which is outside the temple. The temple is the place to worship God, and you're worshiping God in an external way. Ke'ilu Bana Bama, it's like you made an external altar. And if you transgressed and made these new, newfangled religious obligations, then you are obligated to find a mechanism to get the the, the, the vow annulled. So, uh, I'm opening this up for Nechama and for myself. We have this law of a vow, and it has this very strong language. Lo yachel dvaro, you cannot abrogate your word. Your word is serious. And the Ramam says it's great to do this. Maimonides says, fabulous if you want to improve your life 
by doing this. And then in the very next line, he says, wait, but this is tantamount to making an alternative religion, an alternative uh, avenue to God. It's, it's an illicit altar. So what, what do we make of this? So, Alex, I think what I'm going to do today is take a break from gender, which is often what I focus on. And I'm not going to look at the verses in which a father can annul a daughter's vow, a husband can annul a wives, uh, because I really do want to focus on this idea of words expressed reflecting or creating a binding obligation. And I'll just say as an aside, independent women, women who are divorced or widowed, and I would even go as far as to say single women who are no longer in their father's household, according to the Torah, are equally obligated in uh, bearing commitment to the words that they recite in the form of a vow. So that's, I, I've done my job on uh, at least acknowledging that women are included um, outside of the framework of uh, of marriage in these in this in these mitzvot in if what I, God is saying here. If I may just uh, give a little background to what the yeah. is jumping in on um, the, the the line which I didn't quote, <laughs> which comes next, uh, verse number three and four is all about how when a woman vows, the husband can sort of like just annul the vow for her, or and he can allow it to stand. But I, again, I don't want to go into that. There's a very complexity. strong, yeah, there is a very strong, uh, let's call it an anti-feminist side to this uh, particular episode. And there's a very strong sense here that uh, of imbalance between men and women. So uh, if, if you were a bit lost with what Nechama was jumping into, that was the topic. Yeah, hopefully Alex clarified. And since I often teach gender and halakha, I didn't want to ignore, for those who uh, are aware of the parsha, those complicated verses. I want to reflect, however, or focus, however, on um, something that behavioral psychology is constantly trying to figure out, which is how do we create commitment to something, whether it's exercise, whether it's diet, whether it's the goals we make in our personal relationship, uh, in our work relationships, in our work ethic. How do you create commitment? And we know that one of the weakest forms of commitment is to take a New Year's resolution. Those almost always um, uh, erode almost immediately or very quickly after the new year, despite the intentions. And what I see here in this framework is the emphasis given or the weightiness given to the idea of words creating something binding, something that, uh, as you read in the Pasuk, lo uh, dvaro, is that how you read it? Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. So this idea, you will not, your word will not be broken. Words have um, commitment and responsibility and accountability associated with them. And if you're going to take a vow, and I think that's why you have this um, almost dissonance or complexity in Maimonides and the Rambam, which is on one hand, wow, that's really a framework which is going to hold you accountable. And you're not going to be able to renege so quickly on that resolution you took. And clearly you must have taken it because you wanted to spur some sort of perhaps internal growth, personalized individual growth towards spirituality towards obligation and so on. And in that sense, a vow can really help uh, facilitate or force you to take on the commitment you have enunciated. On the other hand, the Rambam is expressing what the rabbis in Tractate Nidarim are wary of, false piety, a kind of showiness. I think you even said a religion 
other than our religion, a worship of something um, that that goes beyond what the boundaries of religion demand, and the concern that that will create a kind of, as I said, I use the word false piety, a bama, a, an altar on which you're going to put your agenda or your ideology, not necessarily within the framework of Torah. I find it I find it fascinating that on the one hand there's this mechanism. Um, sometimes in our Judaism, especially in the Orthodox world, we talk about the the world of Humrah. Right? That there are uh, I've decided to take on a Humrah. I, I've taken on a stringency, and it's almost uh, this can sometimes put people out. Frequently, it's to put you in a more intense place, and uh, I think sometimes um, people are doing this in the name of religion. And they're trying to do this in order to maybe cut off certain options in their in in their in their lifestyle, or maybe it is in order to catapult themselves to a greater degree of intensity. But I think many of us sometimes ask the question: at which point, uh, at what point, those those extra things cloud uh, cloud the the essence, um, and sometimes even take over. And that's maybe where the rumbum that you know we we can take on all sorts of added extras to our Judaism. But sometimes they they become the main the main line, and then it is exactly what Maimonides says that you're making an alternative religion, right? And um, and sometimes the chumrah or the stringency, and I would imagine a vow worked in a similar way, which again tractate nidarim is very wary and somewhat suspicious of those who are vow takers. Um, also serves to put other people down. Yeah, I took a vow, and um, if I can do it, like, what does that say about you? Or it might threaten someone who's not able to take on that stringency. Am I am I good enough? Am I religious enough? And so, um, the I go back to behavioral psychology. If I'm taking a vow, if I'm taking it on in order to ensure a sort of spiritual growth, I have to be very, very careful how I present it to other people. Is it going to threaten them, or is it going to inspire them? And what are my motives for sharing that? Uh, that behavior or that vow with other people. Uh, and I think, you know, that you're, you're going to constantly get the push and pull in rabbinic literature about vows, recognizing the importance and the, uh, and the accountability it creates. And on the other hand, people often do things to make other people feel a little smaller. Right. The, the, one of the areas where I actually do, uh, do find the vow very effective or very interesting um, is in a verse that we, or in a paragraph we read in um, Tehillim, in our Hallel. And I'm sure that many people are familiar with it because Hallel is a pretty popular prayer. And there's a paragraph, it begins with the paragraph Ahavti, uh, where somebody is um, in a de de in dire straits, they're dying, really. Uh, it says, I'm surrounded by death. And you imagine, even when I'm reading this, I imagine somebody who's who's uh, either in sickness or somebody who's drowning. And it says, "Of Hashem Hashem Ekra, I called down and said, Ana Hashem Maltanashi, save me. And in the end, God does. You saved me. And the very next paragraph in our, in our Hallel says, Ma shiv Lashem, what can I return to God? Uh, I'm going to lift up my cup, praise God, I'm going to pay my vows. And of course, when you read this psalm, the question is, what's happening there? And the answer is really is really clear. When people are, you know, if, if God forbid somebody's terribly sick, sometimes what they'll do is in their in their desperate state, they'll say, if only God lets God lets me be healed, I will. I'll donate this money to charity. I will pray every morning. I will do all of this. And 
what's amazing is that Devarim actually warns us that if you take a vow, you really have to fulfill it because words are sacred. Words really matter and words bind. And that's what the Chama was saying before. And it's almost as if, if now God saved me and I don't give the money to charity, I bought on credit, <laughs> but I haven't paid up. And therefore, the most important thing is to live up to the obligations. God has saved me on the basis that I said I will be more dedicated. Um, and one can question whether one's allowed to do this, you know, a divine bargaining uh, with God and play that game. But there's this sense that people would indeed, when they were in terrible situations, would pray to God, would promise things. And by the way, we still do that in a Misha Berach in Shul. You'll get up and say, this person's sick and I will donate money to charity. And then what you would say is, what you actually end up doing is, you'd bring a sacrifice in Jerusalem, you'd invite people, you'd invite the public, and you would, you know, celebrate, and you'd, you'd do what we sometimes do when we do a a, a Thanksgiving or, or sort of a Su'udatodaya, when somebody's been saved, they bring everybody and say, I said if I ever got through this, I'd praise God. <laughs> and now you've created a whole mechanism which enables one to praise God. And I guess this is the example of a, of a vow done correctly. This is an example of a, of a vow done right, where you've brought God into a moment in your life and you've created a sacred uh, moment and you've indeed used it in order to, to be thankful. So what I want to go to is, um, you know, maybe two short examples in, uh, in biblical and rabbinic literature, a vow that went wrong and a vow that went right, and maybe end with a personal story about a vow that very much effect, affected my own life. Um, Jephthah's daughter, I mean, we, we, it's a famous story that Jephthah goes out to war and he takes a vow that whatever comes out of his house first to greet him, he will offer up as a burnt offering to God. And the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. And while the story ends a little elliptically, we're not, uh, elusively, we're not quite sure what happens. Uh, I think the straight up reading is he sacrifices his daughter in the name of his vow. And we're meant to be astonished, uh, horrified. Really, um, we're meant to, to, to be horrified at someone who would take a vow to God and then think God wants that kind of sacrifice. And I think that speaks to the strong emotions uh, and the bias and the, uh, sometimes the agenda, the fear, all of those words that go into what happens if I don't fulfill my vow, even though my vow might take me to a very immoral place like killing my daughter, but I vowed to God. And so I have no choice but to fulfill it. The Midrash, the Midrash there has an amazing scene where where uh, Yiftach, Jephthah, is about to kill his, slaughter his daughter. And she says, I, I don't get it. Like, did, did Abraham have to slaughter Isaac? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, God doesn't want parents to kill their children. And he says to her, my dear, I vowed, I have to keep my vow. And it should be so evident. And it's so evident to the Midrash that, okay, you made a vow. Your word is very important. We have to keep our word, but not at the cost of somebody's life. And what makes that Midrash even more startling is the Midrash in two different places, two different versions says, God hid the halacha from those who could have absolved Jephthah, which suggests a critique of God for not stepping in in the way he stepped in to save Yitzchak. So we're actually going to, we could do a whole podcast just on those Midrashim, um, but uh, yes, very much so, that that not every word is meant to be fulfilled, and you have to use your seichel, as my grandmother would say. You have to really think, wait a minute, why did I take this vow? And in fulfilling it, am I reaching the religious, spiritual, personal goals I've set for myself? And that's what Maimonides said when he said, and yes. if you make a vow, which is inappropriate, find a way to get it absolved. And there is a whole area of hatarat nadarim, of yes. a mechanism whereby you can get vows which were taken 
in bad faith or was taken in, in some mistaken uh, assumptions. You thought you could do something and you can't hack it or you can't do it or it's wrong. You get it absolved. And um, and an example, one of my favorite stories in the Talmud of a, po- a vow that works in the behavioral psychology way, in the right way, is a young man, a shepherd, who catches sight of himself and sees how beautiful he is. And his hair is very beautiful. It's very much like the Narcissus story retold. And instead of being seduced by his beauty, he takes a vow to shave off his head as a Nazir. And I really feel that's the moment where he says, if I don't do something drastic, I'm going to be seduced by my beauty. And by taking the vow and fulfilling that vow, I'm going to redirect myself. I caught sight of myself. I know where I can go if I follow path A. I want path B. And the vow is going to be a way to ensure that I go down path B. And that's really what he does. Um, but what I want to, want to take it to, I, I promised a personal story. Um, when my grandmother, already 80 plus years ago, uh, she had trouble getting pregnant. She was not able to get pregnant. She was not able to keep her pregnancy. And um, she was not observant. She was that generation of Ellis Island where uh, she had 10 siblings and none of them stayed observant, even though her parents were. And, uh, and she went to find a rabbi to speak to because in moments of distress, it's that parak of Tehillim you, you read, you call out to God. And she went to a rabbi, a very famous rabbi at the time, who said to her, do you take a vow that you will send your child to Jewish education, to a religious education, uh, to a, a cheder, to essentially a Jewish school? And she took a vow and she had my father and um, she sent him to cheder. She sent him to a very religious school and he started to come home and tell his father, you know, we learned you can't work on Shabbos. And my grandfather stopped working on Shabbos. Wow. And then he came home and he said, we learned you can't eat out in non-kosher restaurants. And they stopped eating in non-kosher restaurants. And it essentially changed their entire lives. And my father, you know, and, and his and his siblings grew up religious and raised religious children. And it was from a vow, right? This vow of desperation. It's exactly what you read in the Parak of Tehillim. No, it's so interesting because you're telling the story and I'm, and you mentioned Ellis Island. And I've also got a story of my great-grandfather who stood with his father on the dockside in Poland. And he was, my, my great-grandfather was sending a 15-year-old boy to the new world. He came up in England. He actually thought he was going to America, but they, huh. they tricked him and they told him to get off the boat at London. And, um, and his, his father made him take an actual oath that he would remain. He asked him to say three things. Number one, you have to promise, you have to swear that you will remain an observant Jew. Number two, you'll have to swear to me that your wife will cover her hair because they knew that, you know, women used to throw their wigs off the boat. And the third thing he said, I want you to promise that you'll remain a mensch and you will never borrow money that you can't pay back. Wow. And this is like a legend in our story that our forebears had to take this oath. Yeah, my my grandmother's vow is also a legend into how the family left this assimilation that was happening all around them with her siblings and uh, transformed the family into one of observance. So yeah, look at that. We have each have personal stories of vows that created such impact, such commitment that ultimately it, it, it transformed lives. And we were talking about the fact that in today's world, where we have so many choices, it's sometimes really difficult for people, both adults and young people, to live up to obligations, to commitments, that we're sort of swimming in so many different, you know, options that we can't, that it's very hard. We always think, oh, there'll be another thing. There'll be another one we don't want to commit. And so always thinking, whenever I read Torah and I read 
you know, passages in Torah, where can we find relevance? I think this is one of those parshas when you asked me to join you in a podcast, I was like, what are we going to find to talk about that's meaningful? It's not one of my favorite Torah portions. And yet here we've had a conversation that I feel like on Shabbat, I'm going to sit around with my children and say, wait a minute, where can commitment come from? You know, where where do you guys find a framework for creating as behavioral psychology, right? A way that you really feel obligated to something, to goals you want to meet. I'm not advocating for vows. I think those are, I know people who still take vows and it's complicated and then they want to get the vows annulled and, and so on. I'm not arguing that we go back to that specific framework, but I'd like to encourage this week to be a conversation where people can talk about how to be accountable, how to create the goal setting framework that they can uh, foster the growth that they want in relationships and spirituality and and etc. Yeah, I love that. They use the word accountability. I was thinking about the word loyalty. Mm-hmm. We give our word to somebody else. And, uh, you know, that sense that once upon a time, my word was my bond. But today you can't trust, you know, promises and things like that. And that really brings us just to the end of the Parsha. We talked about this, that um, the the two and a half tribes that ask to settle on the other side of the Jordan and, and Moses gets very angry at them. How are you not going over the Jordan with us? And so on. They take a vow that they will not return to settle their land until they go and fight the war and help the other tribes settle their land. In other words, they basically make a commitment to Moses, we'll leave our livestock, we'll leave our women and children, and we will go over with our brethren and fight until the end. And only then will we come back for this very personal choice of remaining on the other side of the Jordan. But they assure Moshe that they very much see their commitment and accountability towards their brethren and the rest of the nation. Right. And in fact, in the Halakha, in, in Masechet Gitin, which deals a lot with questions of commitment, they actually talk about a the, the nether of B'nai Garu B'nai Ruvain, a Tanai B'nai Garu B'nai Ruvain, that a condition, when you have to say it this way and you say it that way, they say, uh, if we go, if, if you know, if if we go and help all the Jewish people, then we can have our land. And if we don't, we can't. In other words, a watertight contract, a watertight agreement, which is expressed in the sense of promises which are meant to be kept. Great. This was really a much more interesting conversation than I anticipated, Alex. Thank okay. you. So I wish all of our listeners Shabbat Shalom. And may we take our words seriously. Thank you. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.